sermon text tonight is Genesis 29, uh, verses 1 through 30. Genesis 29, 1 through 30. Let's give our full attention now to God's holy word. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me. What shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Our New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34. About trusting in the Lord and his providence and waiting on him. 
and receiving from His grace. Matthew six twenty five through 34 Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Join me in prayer now. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word and faith. Grant us seeing eyes, hearing ears, a trusting heart. Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak now for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for two chapters previous to chapter 29 in Genesis, we've been looking at the life of Jacob, and especially we've seen God's blessing on Jacob. And it's, been, um, and it's been a glorious picture of the gospel. You have, da- you have, you have Jacob. He's this lying, cheating, grasping, ambitious uh, sinner, right? Rebelling against God, sinning against his father Isaac, sinning against his brother Esau, and his sin rupturing his family relationships all over the place. But then God, even as Jacob's doing all that, is busy blessing him, showing him grace, showing him kindness, giving him promises. Um, and, and even when Jacob has to leave Canaan, leave the promised land because of, uh, because of his own sin and the consequences of that sin, and this journey he's taking as well to find a, a wife, uh, he's, he's, he's doing that, but the Lord meets him there. And the Lord, again, we saw this last week, the Lord meets him at Bethel, and he gives him promise after promise after promise. He takes the promises he gave Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father, and he multiplies them to Jacob. And then he gives Jacob a a deeply personal promise in addition to those promises. And he says to him uh, in 28.15, he says, Behold, Jacob, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. All that for a sinner who didn't deserve any of it. It's a vivid picture for us, loved ones, of the gospel, of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's a vivid picture of Romans 5, 8, which says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, God, uh, Christ died for us. We were not 
worthy candidates for salvation. We were not uh, a likely choice for his blessing. We were abhorrent to God, just like Jacob, unholy, selfish, uh, stubborn and proud and rebellious and disobedient. No faith in us or propensity for faith in us. And in that, God loved us. It's stunning. It's scandalous. This grace of God for us and his love for us in Christ. This is... This is the, 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 the sweet essence of the gospel. And the Lord makes the same promise to us that he made to Jacob, doesn't he? He says, I'll be with you. I'll keep you until I've done what I've said I'm going to do. Jesus says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. He's given us his spirit and he's with us. This is what we've seen so far in Jacob's life and God's work in Jacob's life. But all of that is not the end. There's more. Um, God's, especially God's promise there to Jacob in Bethel as he's on his way out of the promised land, that he's going to keep him, that he's going to be with him. Uh, that, that's an important promise. And it's not a sentimental promise. It's not just a promise that he's going to take care of his feelings and make sure things go well for him um, materially outside the promised land. It's a promise that he is never going to let Jacob go. It's almost a dangerous promise, isn't it? Because the Holy God is promising to be with a sinner. And he is going to be at work in that sinner. He's going to be changing things in that sinner. He's going to be, he's going to be taking out the props of self-reliance from that sinner, from Jacob, and teaching him to trust in him alone. Loved ones, this is what God does with us as well. Um, uh, being saved by grace is a glorious thing, but it is also a very frightening thing. He comes and he loves us like this. He chooses us like this in our sin. Uh, and then he gets to work. And his blessing is, is, is wonderful. It's also severe. It's hard on our sin and on our self-reliance. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful image of sanctification. He pictures it you know, uh, like our hearts are, 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 are houses that need renovating. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we want God to rearrange the furniture, um, redecorate. Uh, but God comes and he starts knocking out walls and adding new wings. And he's, he's doing something a lot bigger than we imagined, a lot more disruptive and difficult for us uh, than we wanted him to do. Uh, we, are, we are going to see this process over the next few chapters here uh, unfold very slowly and often very painfully in Jacob's life. And as we do, as we see it, we're also going to be seeing a model for how God in Christ works in our lives well, uh, as well. Um, and here at the beginning, we see Jacob start his first lesson, uh, his first lesson here, which is to learn the utter uselessness of self-reliance. We start with the setting here for God's work in Jacob's life, which is in the wilderness. He starts in the wilderness. Uh, God, God is sending Jacob out into the wilderness. He's, he's, by his providence, leading him out of the promised land, uh, not, not necessarily leaving civilization behind, but entering a sort of spiritual wilderness, a place apart from the promised land uh, of God. This is something you should key into as an important theme in the Bible, this idea of, of, of God's people or, or, or one of God's chosen being led into the wilderness to learn something. Is an, is, an important, is an important thing in the, in the Bible. We see this in the Bible several times over and over. Um, a very similar situation happens with Moses, God's servant Moses, right? In Exodus 2, we read of Moses. He, um, 
sees an Egyptian uh, beating uh, an Israelite slave. He gets angry. He kills that Egyptian for doing it um, in a wrong-headed attempt to free the Israelites on his own, self-reliant, right? Uh, but uh, then he gets afraid for his life because someone saw him do it. And he runs into the wilderness. And then there in the wilderness, he spends 40 years starting a family and feeding sheep. 40 years out there. And what's the Lord, what's the Lord doing? He's humbling him. He's training him. He's getting to work in his heart, preparing him for what he's called him to do, teaching him to trust him. It's a lesson you have to learn in the wilderness. We see the same thing with the whole nation of Israel, don't we? God brings them out of the promised land under Moses, and uh, he, he liberates them from Egypt. But they don't rush straight into the promised land. Um, they spend time in the wilderness. They wait. It's a consequence of their sin that they spend the 40 years there that they do, but it's also part of the providence of God to train them and shape them and wean them off this, again, this self-reliance. And many generations later, God is going to have to take them back into the wilderness and the exile for 70 years to do the same thing over again with his people until they've learned to worship him alone. We see it in Jesus, too. Matthew chapter 4. The Spirit leads Jesus out until the wilderness. The heavens have just been opened. The Spirit has come down. A blessing from God on him, evocative of the blessing of God at Bethel for Jacob. And then he's led into the wilderness to learn obedience, to be tested by the devil. So what we see over the whole course of Scripture here is uh, that the wilderness is God's training ground. Now, uh, don't misunderstand me as I'm using the word wilderness. It's not um, kind of our, our modern idea of, of going camping, getting out into nature, going on a hike, right? Um, that that God, God uses the stillness and the quiet of a, of a nice, peaceful camping trip to get to work in your heart. That He might. That, that, that is true. He, we see his glory in nature. Um, but, but this is not about getting away and having some time for quiet contemplation. Uh, th- this is about the Lord bringing his people into a place where things are difficult and a place where there are trials and a place where there is a sense of constant dependence on him. Now, this is a spiritual wilderness of having the props of our self-reliance pulled out one by one. Uh, This is what God's providence is busy doing in your life, brothers and sisters. Um, We are living as Christians in the wilderness. This is where God has us. We read about this in Hebrews 4. We're we're not in the heavenly promised land. All our life is is in this spiritual wilderness, if you will, where God is at work in us, training us, bringing us through testing and and trial. Um, Yes, he's begun to, in a sense, we're, we're, we're spiritually there in Christ in the heavenlies, but we're not there yet. Um, this is where we are. This is where God is working on us. So this is, this is the setting. This is where Jacob's going. And this is what God is designing to do. And then we see, next in the text here, um, we see the foolishness of, of, of Jacob's self-reliance exposed out here in the wilderness. Uh, the spiritual wilderness. Um, there's this great contrast here as we begin chapter 29, uh, as, as Jacob leaves the promised land. Uh, from, from what we'll see in Jacob when he comes back many years later, back home to the promised land in chapter 32. Uh, in chapter 32, he comes back to the promised land limping. Chapter 29, he's leaving with a swagger. 
um, he's feeling good about himself. He's feeling confident in himself as he heads out into the wilderness. He's going to come home with a limp. Um, he comes to this region where Uncle Laban is. Verse 1 tells us this is the land of the people of the east. Um, east is usually a warning sign in the Old Testament, especially Genesis. Um, Cain heads east. Tower of Babel is built in the east. Right? So there's already this note being sounded in the text for us that Laban's family is in questionable territory in their relationship to the Lord. Perhaps some worship of God as well as other gods going on in their family. Um, Jacob comes here to this field. He sees this well. There's these flocks of sheep there. There's some shepherds there. Uh, he finds out they're from where Laban is, that they know Laban, and they, they point out Laban's daughter, Rachel, to him. And to understand, I think, what the, narrative, what, what, uh, what the Scripture is doing for us here, we need to see this account in contrast with the other account of finding a wife for a patriarch that we saw not too long ago in Genesis. Um, remember how Abraham sent his servant to get a wife for Isaac from this same family out here uh, in Haran. Um, there, there are similarities, right? Uh, Abraham sends his servant to go out uh, to, 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 this, to this family in Haran, and, the, and he goes and he, he stops by a well, and he meets, uh, he meets the future wife of his master, Isaac, by that well, uh, just as Jacob is meeting his future wife by this well here. Uh, but there's this great disparity between the two accounts. Because on the one hand, you have Abraham's servant going, and, and he's, he's praying, and he's looking to God to bless. His whole demeanor in that, is, in that account is depending on the guidance of God and the wisdom of God and the blessing of God. Um, but Jacob, there's none of that here. He's going not seeking the Lord's strength or wisdom or guidance or blessing. He's taking matters into his own hands. He's, he's relying on his own cunning and on his own strength in this text. Um, we see this play out as, as uh, he sees Rachel come, and, uh, and then he proceeds to roll away this big stone and to water the whole flock himself. No mean feat, right? This is a, this is a, this is a heavy task that he's doing. Uh, and, and it's a good thing for him to do, isn't it? being chivalrous, being kind, being thoughtful. Uh, this is really what he should do. The issue is he's doing it in self-reliance. He, he's doing it not in reliance on the Lord. He's doing it out of his own personal ambition. There, there's no, uh, no calling on the Lord here and asking for his blessing. And we see this trend continue. Um, it goes on. He greets Rachel. Um, she takes him to meet her father, Laban. And uh, Jacob stays and works for a month there. Um, what's, he, what's he doing? I think he's, uh, he's showing Laban that he's got a lot to offer as a son-in-law, that, he, that, uh, that, um, that, he, that he's a good candidate for, for this. And uh, Laban takes the bait and says, uh, what should I give you? You, you? you shouldn't serve me for nothing. Jacob says, well, give me your daughter Rachel in exchange for this. Note the contrast, right, between... Abraham's servant, Isaac, uh, servant going to get the a wife, going to get a wife for Isaac. In that story, there, there, there's none of this kind of bargaining. There's none of this. Uh, there's none of this wheeling and dealing that Jacob is doing. Isaac's uh, servant simply goes straight to the family, says, "Here's who I am. Here's who my master is. Um, it's the blessed of the Lord, and I've come to find a wife. Um, is Rebecca willing? Yes, she's willing. Okay, and they go home uh, the very next day." Um, but here, there's none of this reliance on the Lord. 
um, none of the blessing of the Lord apparent here. It seems like Jacob is unwilling to trust the Lord and more desirous to trust his own strength here. Ian Duguid uh, has a great little commentary on the life of Jacob, and he asks a provocative question. He says, what if, what if Jacob had done the same thing that his father's servant had done uh, when he went to find a wife? Um, right? Instead of relying on himself and relying on his own ability, his own resources, his own smarts for this, what if, what if he had prayed and relied on the Lord? Um, what years of hard toil might he have avoided? And, and the hardships that go on to happen and the, the heartbreak that goes on to happen. And he perhaps could have brought the wife, his, his new wife home in just a few weeks. And so many things that were hard later on would have been avoided, but instead he chooses self-reliance and his own merits rather than weakness and faith in the Lord. And so God gives him the results of his own cunning. Uh, he leads him into difficulty um, through this. What, what, what we see in Jacob here, loved ones, um, is the opposite of living by faith. Uh, he is to be the man of faith uh, as his father and grandfather, but there is no evidence that he's walking in faith at this point. Um, to walk in faith before the Lord means that you don't have a sense that you are up to the task, that your cunning and your smarts are enough. It's a sense of weakness. It's a sense of dependence of, of your insufficiency and God's inexhaustible sufficiency for you. Um, there's no swaggering in the Christian life. It's all limping, uh, as Jacob has yet to learn. Think of the way that Paul describes the Christian life in Second Corinthians. He says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the way God works in our lives. This is is the mark of living by faith. Knowing your weakness. Knowing it and accepting it. And crying out to Him for His strength and His grace for you. Um, Have you learned, loved ones, your weakness? Have you learned to be needy and wait on the Lord and call out to Him alone for salvation? Um, have you learned to limp um, in the Christian life in dependence on Him? It's not a lesson you learn well or easily unless God is teaching it to you in the wilderness. Um, and He leads you, the Lord, the Lord will lead you into the providence necessary to teach you this weakness. And we see this in Jacob's life as, as the account goes on, that now God starts to humble him. Jacob's been refusing to walk in weakness of his own, trusting the Lord's strength, and now the Lord begins to humble him by his providence. We see this, uh, the, the Lord has a particular providence that he uses to begin this process of humbling Jacob. Actually, it's a particular person that he's going to use to humble Jacob. A particularly problematic person, a person a lot like him that he's going to use to humble him. He's going to bring a very difficult person into Jacob's life. Um, And he's going to use this uh, to show Jacob who he himself is and how he needs to repent. And that person is Laban, uh, Jacob's uncle, where here we see him start to out Jacob, Jacob. Um, He agrees to give Rachel to Jacob in exchange for the seven years of work. Um, Jacob is pleased. Uh, He works hard. The seven years fly by. The wedding night comes. And they're married, but they didn't have electric lights. Um, 
They didn't, it was probably fairly dark. Uh, they probably had uh, a fair amount to drink, I guess, at a party like this. And um, however it happened, it's not until the next morning that uh, Jacob realizes that Laban has done one over on him. He's given him his older daughter, Leah, uh, not the daughter he wanted, not, not Rachel. Uh, Jacob is, of course, outraged at this, as anyone would be. He's been lied to. He's been tricked. Um, uh, he, 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 he thought he was marrying the younger, but he's married the older. The irony is so rich. As, as Laban comes to him, he says, well, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And this is exactly what Jacob did, right? He, he, he lied. He pretended to be his older brother to get his older brother's blessing. And now here the older sister pretends to be the younger sister to get the blessing. Does Jacob see God's hand in this? Does he understand what God is doing? That at that moment God is pointing out to him what he himself has done. Um, we're not told. It seems like he doesn't really learn the lesson yet. He just seems upset and, and angry. Um, he doesn't seem to display repentance um, he decides that he's going to work seven more years to earn Rachel. Um, this time, Laban's going to pay it forward. Uh, he gives, uh, as soon as the honeymoon is over with Leah, um, Jacob's allowed to marry Rachel, and then he gets, to, he gets to work for him seven more years. There's no hesitation in Jacob at this, taking two wives. Isaac didn't do it. Abraham didn't. There, there were concubines at times, but, but not, not two wives, um, it's against what he would have known to be right. It's what the culture was doing, but, but not, what, uh, what, not what they should have been doing. He should know God created marriage to be one man and one woman. And um, we first time we read in Genesis about a man taking two wives, it's Lamech, the seventh from Cain, the epitome of, of evil there in that early chapter, the early chapters of Genesis, the man of violence and vengeance and rebellion against God. He's the one who takes multiple wives, not the people of God. So Jacob seems to be uh, uh, walking further from the Lord in this. Second, he then goes on to play favorites with his wives. Verse 30 tells us that he loved Rachel more than Leah. It's understandable that he would, but at the same time, brothers and sisters, it's completely unacceptable for him to do this. Um, he should know what, what this is going to do to his family. He, he, he should know because it's what he experienced. His father preferred his older brother. His mother preferred him. Look what that did to their family. And now he's doing the exact same thing, probably even worse. And it's going to have implications for his, uh, his children as well. It's going to lead to devastation and heartache. It's going to lead his children to hate each other and fight against each other. Um, and uh, so he doesn't seem to be showing repentance here for, for what the Lord is, is doing in his life. Brothers and sisters, what should we learn from this? God is using this providence to humble Jacob. And the Lord also is at work in us in the same ways to, to work His providence uh, so, that, so, that, so that we come to see the consequences of our sin and uh, lose a little more self-reliance. God's at work in you when others are sinning against you. God's at work in you when others are hurting you. He's at work humbling you. He's at, he's at work teaching you. There's a difficult person in your life. They're there because God has them there for you to learn something from, uh, to, to teach you to be humble. Um, so, loved ones, don't be like Jacob. 
Pray for a teachable heart, a humble heart, a heart aware to your sin and your need for the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God's God's grace is at work in these ways, humbling us, uh, bringing us through these trials and and these difficulties. Brothers and sisters, um, this is exactly what we should expect from the Lord, that, that His hand is at work in us, even in trials and in difficulties, even in the consequences of our own sin. He's at work. And it may feel hard and uh, like a difficulty at times, but be encouraged because this is his work and he will see it through. This, this is sanctification. Um, it's that, that, that long obedience in the same direction. It's that, that work of God. It's his grace doing it in you, uh, enabling you to live more and more to, to, to righteousness. And he will see it through. Um, remember how we started describing the promise that God gives Jacob in chapter 28, um, which is really, in a sense, the cause of so much of the difficulty in chapter 29. The Lord promises him, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. I won't leave you till I've done what I've spoken to you. It's that promise that has led Jacob into these valleys of humiliation and difficulty and embarrassment and challenge. Uh, that is the Lord's same promise to us as well. He's with us, and He's going to bring us into the difficulties, and He's going to bring us into the, the, the challenging things. Um, but He's going to be at work in you in those things. It's, a, it's, it's true, loved ones, of every circumstance of your life, every relationship in your life. Um, it's true in the uncertainty of aging parents. Um, it's true in the difficulties of uh, messy relationships. It's true in the daily grind of work. It's true in, in, in uh, the frustrations of, of parenting. It's true in your battle against sin. In every circumstance of your life, every challenge and every difficulty, you're there because the Lord is at work in you there. And He won't leave you. Uh, he's going to bring you through it. He's shaping you into the image of Christ. And this is our great comfort in in all of it. He's not going to stop until he's brought us safely home. He says to us in Christ, Behold, I'm with you. and I'm with you wherever you go. I'll keep you and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you till I've done what I have spoken to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us in Christ. We thank you for your goodness in bearing with us so patiently. And Lord, uh, bringing us through things that we need so that we learn not to rely on ourselves, but to trust you. Lord, we pray you would continue at work, that you would not leave us or forsake us, but you do what you've promised. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.